Even people who don't know the story of Jonestown know the phrase that it spawned, drinking the Kool-Aid. A tragedy reduced to a derisive catchphrase, reserved for people seemingly too stupid to think for themselves. It is a comfort letting us believe we are above what happened to the Jonestown victims. We would never drink the Kool-Aid. This is the great myth of Jonestown, that only the feeble-minded could be convinced to kill themselves. But the deaths of some 900 people at Jonestown on November 18, 1978, was not mass suicide. It was mass murder. We all think we'd never be duped by a cult, that we're smart enough to see through the lies. But a cult rarely starts out the way it ends up. The People's Temple was no exception. From the moment Jim Jones, a poor boy from Indiana, started the church, its mission was to do good. Although Jones's true motivations are impossible to know, there's no question of what members of the People's Temple did in the community. First in Indianapolis and then in San Francisco, the temple championed racial equality. At a time when almost no churches were integrated, the People's Temple boasted a congregation of blacks and whites. During the 1950s and 1960s, they staged sit-ins and protests to demand businesses serve black customers. It worked more often than not. The church gave food, clothes, and shelter to the most vulnerable in the community. They opened senior living facilities, some of the best in the state, and found jobs for unemployed congregants. Their drug and alcohol rehab programs provided life-saving help. Young followers who couldn't afford to attend college were given scholarships. At the pulpit, Jones preached against the unfairness of capitalism and the racism rife in America. It was an appealing message for a chaotic time. Even those who didn't buy Jones's bluster could agree these were good people making a real difference in the world. In San Francisco, they had all the proof they needed. Jim Jones was a regular feature in Herb Kahn's society columns. Kahn called him soft-spoken, modest, publicity shy. George Moscone and Harvey Milk both attended temple services. Governor Jerry Brown planned on it, too, but missed the date due to a scheduling mix-up. He called to apologize and praise the good work People's Temple was doing. If this was a cult, followers could reason it was a cult with the backing of some of California's most prominent politicians. As obvious as it later seems, the dissent isn't always noticeable at first. It's a slow burn, a series of small allowances. Jones's sermons became more erratic. He started talking more and more about nuclear war, enemies at the gate. But longtime congregants knew Jones could get on tangents, and a look at the state of America, Watergate, Vietnam, devastating racial inequality, was enough to confirm any doomsday scenario. When Jones told them about the promised land, a utopia just for them in Guyana, he had already groomed a receptive audience. In 1977, hundreds of People's Temple members began moving into the Guyana compound they named 
Jonestown. Of the 900 people who would eventually move there, one-third were pensioners, many of whom who had been recruited into the church as part of a retirement plan at People's Temple. They thought they would be cared for for the rest of their lives. Most of the adults were poor. Many already relied on the church for steady meals, housing, and employment. What little they had went to the construction of Jonestown. 300 of them were children. When arrivals got off the plane in South America, temple enforcers took their passports. Most of them never got them back. Once at Jonestown, Jones began utilizing several textbook brainwashing tactics to ensure compliance. The first was isolation. Alone in a thick jungle, their only source of information was Jim Jones. He told them, Blacks were being rounded up in concentration camps back home, and the U.S. government was bent on destroying Jonestown next. At any moment, the army could burst into the compound to murder every man, woman, and child. Those who did not believe were usually too tired to question him. Building a town in the jungle was an exhausting, endless job. Adult members were worn down with constant physical labor and little food. Once the workday was done, they gathered in the pavilion for hours-long sermons. Jones would often talk past midnight. Wake up was at 6 a.m. Even when they weren't sitting for sermons, Jones was omnipresent. He had a loudspeaker system rigged up in the compound and often droned on throughout the day. There were dissenters and escape attempts, but almost no one succeeded. Making it out of the jungle was a near-impossible task. Even if the initial escape was a success, followers had no passports and most of them had no money. They couldn't fly back to the Bay Area if they wanted to. Jones's bodyguards hunted down escapees, some of whom were then drugged and kept in special huts. Then there was the test run. Jones, drug-addicted and deeply paranoid, demanded total loyalty. In February 1978, he announced to his followers that an armed force was coming to kill everyone at Jonestown. He ordered them to line up and drink from a vat of poison. They would all be dead in 45 minutes. After the time elapsed, Jones declared it was a test of loyalty, and they had passed. True believers accepted that whatever Jones did was right. Those increasingly disaffected with Jones, but still loyal to the temple's professed socialist cause, shrugged the experience off as one more example of Jones's increasingly bizarre behavior. Many, sleep-deprived and emotionally exhausted, were just glad to get back to their beds. Up until the last moment, some people on November 18, 1978, believed that Jones was again putting them through a test. But Jones, feeling the walls closing in on him and terrified his power was slipping away, ordered his personal physician to dose the flavor aid with potassium cyanide. The babies and children were killed first. 304 of them died that day. On the loudspeaker, Jones told the adults they were committing an act of revolutionary suicide. In death, they would prove to the world that no one 
could murder their ideals. There is no doubt that some believed this and went willingly, but still others, harassed, brainwashed, and beaten emotionally and physically, went to their deaths. Dozens were found with needle marks in their arms, suggesting that they had been injected with poison. Armed guards surrounded the pavilion. On the tape recording of the massacre, all Jonestown sermons were recorded, Jones can be heard urging his wife, Marceline, to stop fighting, stop screaming. Their deaths would be painless, Jones said. It was the last of his many lies. Cyanide poisoning is horrific. It suffocates its victims, causes convulsions and bloody vomit. Then the victim finally suffers brain death. Over 900 people died after drinking the poisoned fluid. Jim Jones killed himself with a gunshot to the head. In the years leading up to Jonestown, Jones often referenced Masada, the hilltop fortress in Israel. In the 70s CE, Roman soldiers laid siege to that Jewish settlement. Rather than surrender, legend says, 960 Jewish residents decided to kill themselves. Jones considered that the greatest statement of a conviction, a tale of faith that still resonates across the centuries. From childhood, Jones was sure he was destined to be a great man. If Jonestown failed, quietly disappeared back into the jungle, he would be nothing. In his all-consuming quest to feed his own ego, Jones murdered hundreds of people. He thought it would make Jonestown the modern-day Masada. But if there is one solace in the tale, it is this. Death did not make Jim Jones a martyr. It made him a monster. There are two sides to every story, and today you heard the other side of the Jonestown Massacre.